then everyone turns back in the, in the room. They look at me like, Alex, if you turn up the triangle anymore, it would be a freaking triangle concerto. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and it was, I, my ears were just not picking up the change in the volume. Hi, I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. In this episode, I wanted to delve into what does it mean to have a meaningful career, something you feel not just proud of, but feel like you're making a difference. Which is why you'll hear some music from the Resistance Revival Chorus and get to hear from them, as well as my guest, Sir Alex Lacamoire. No, he's technically not a sir. I just like that. It adds gravitas. Not that he needs it. He's a Grammy and Tony-winning musical director, composer, and arranger. And yes, you'll find out what all of those things are for Hamilton, In the Heights, Dear Evan Hansen, and now he's working on some Pixar movies. Not only is he the first in his family to go to college, never mind music school, but he also deals with personal challenges, which I don't I want to give away because you'll hear in the interview. Alex Lacamoire and the Resistance Revival Chorus appeared on a live taping of Employee of the Month at the Gramercy Theater. And you'll get to hear from my phenomenal house band with my intern, Chris Shockwave Sullivan, and my intern's intern, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, leading an extraordinary group of musicians, including one who took the night off from Dear Evan Hansen, Robbie Jost. And you'll know why I'm singling out these guys when you listen to our interview. to join us this evening. Hey, hey. Thank you, thank you. So I found this beautiful picture from when you were little. And is that your first Tony? <laughs> I think it was for playing uh, something, some ch- child's piece. Maybe it was Mary Had a Little Lamb. I have no idea. But it was, it was a trophy for something, some kind of piano thing. Yeah. How old were you, do you think, in that photo where you're wearing this gorgeous white tux with a <laughs> That my mom probably made for me. I, I'm probably five or six in there, I think. I, don't, I can't really tell, but probably something like that. And so, okay, you grew up in L.A. Can you talk a little bit about your parents? Were they musicians? No, they weren't. Uh, my parents are both from Cuba, but they actually met in Los Angeles. Uh, and they were set up by my uncle who put them together. Neither of them are musicians, and they didn't really have a lot of music playing in the house. I do remember there being like a record player, and I, I was the one that played the records more than they did. So uh, I just I found music on my own. And I, can you share a little bit about what your childhood was like? You know, I, I remember my mom cleaning houses. Uh, you know, my, my dad had a stroke when I was about four years old. So like in his late 30s, he had an aneurysm and the right side of his body got paralyzed and it's still paralyzed. So my dad limps and his right hand is in a, a permanent fist. But my dad persevered. He found a way to like drive and like go to the store to pick stuff up for us and drive me to school. So like that to me was a, a really good role model to have as someone who could really overcome stuff that's thrown at them. But uh, I do remember my mom, you know, coming from Cuba, didn't go to college, you know, not a, a whole ton of an ed- education. So there weren't a lot of job opportunities. But in my mom's, you know, career, she's cleaned houses. She tried to become a hairdresser. She worked as a receptionist as a funeral home. And then because of her hairdressing skills, actually like, did some hair on some of the other uh, bodies in the funeral home. And then she actually like worked at Publix in the freezer section. She tried to do the mail room. She worked in a toll booth. Like my mom really like did a lot to try to make ends meet for us. That is for sure. And so were you the first in your family to, cause you went to Berkeley, Berkeley college, college of music. music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I was the first one who decided to pursue music professionally that I know of. I would hear stories about my grandfather knowing how to play the harmonica. I think my mom would tell stories that whenever it was someone's birthday, like my mom comes from a family of nine. So like, you know, when they were like, 
they would be woken up in the morning of their birthday by my grandfather playing on the harmonica for them to like wake them up and play them happy birthday. So I know that he had a love of music. I know that my dad had an aunt who played piano. So somewhere up there in, in the gene pool, there was something that got passed on to me, I think. And it seems like I see pictures of you just um, brushing off all your accolades. And these may, again, be your first Tonys. Um, <laughs> I love that you're cleaning your awards. I remember my mom handing, uh, someone handed that to me and they they got me to polish it and someone grabbed the picture. And this was at the recital. That was at the recital, yeah. And you're definitely picking up a lot of ladies along the way. (laughs) There are all these women surrounding you. Oh my God. Um, I think my mom made me that jacket too. (laughs) My mom can sell y'all. She, yes, she can. You look absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And so it's, it sounds like you were, or it sounds like, it looks like, based on these pictures, you were playing in recitals quite young. Yeah. I've been playing piano since I was four. And I remember in LA having these aptitude tests for piano, and you would have to learn music theory, and you would have to play a certain grade of music and kind of like move up a certain tier of, of study. Yeah. But a big important thing was being in a recital, playing in front of people, getting to know what it's like to perform in public, to have to like walk on stage and take a bow and, you know, and if you mess up, keep going. So, I mean, there's a lot of like performance stuff that got instilled in me at a very early age. And the, the thing that's so interesting with music per se, like out of all the arts in terms of performing arts is like, you can be a brilliant musician and not necessarily perform on stage. Sure. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a different thing. And it's funny because a lot of what I do, it's very behind the scenes and very like, it's a backstage kind of life. Definitely being an arranger, being a music director, it's not always that you get to be on the stage and in the forefront. So it's this weird line of having to know what one has to do to be on stage so that you can support those who are and then kind of knowing, okay, you're also kind of in the background in a way. Because I'm one of those guys that I actually like, I hate performing by myself. If I'm at a party... Good and to someone, know. If someone ever says to me, hey, Alex, play a song for us on the piano, I'm like, eh. But if someone wants to sing and like, would you play for me while I sing this song? I'm like, yes, whatever you need to do. Like, I always love accompanying. I love supporting. I love that kind of collaboration. On that note, we have someone who, who played hooky tonight from Dear Heaven, Evan Hansen, who you hired. Hey, to be in Dear Evan Hansen. Do you want to show us a little bit about one of your many jobs and explain what this title is because you have so many job titles? Sure, of course. So uh, I, I have a lot of job titles. Uh, a music director. I just said that. A ranger. <laughs> you did. We did. And in case you missed it, uh, orchestrator, pianist, uh, all that stuff. So I figured one of the things that we talked about that might be fun to describe is kind of one of the jobs of orchestration and what some of that entails. Because on one hand, I think orchestration can be kind of a macro job at times in terms of deciding, okay, what is the, the sound of this song? What are the instruments that one would choose? And then there's a lot of orchestration that's actually micro, which is about really getting into the details of how the music looks, how the music is articulated, because a note on a staff can be played a billion different ways. And it's about trying to let the musicians know what you intend when you actually write that down. So yes, we brought someone from the Dear Evan Hansen Band. So on bass, y'all, this is Rob Jost over here. Give a hand for Rob. (laughs) Rob is amazing. So I figured what we do is uh, we'll, we'll use a keynote up there. And I brought some little excerpts of showing an example of like a thought process behind something that I was working on once where I needed to come up with an arrangement and I needed to come up with the bass part. And I'm like, okay, so in my mind, I know I want the bass to play uh, on the chord A. And it's going to be what we call an A pedal, 
where you just kind of sit on the A for a long time. And I knew I wanted to have a very driving rhythm happening, something that's very constant. So I wanted to have all eighth notes. So if we can just show what that looks like here, we have all these eighth notes and then we have these little symbols that mean repeat, repeat, repeat. So Rob, show me what this sounds like, please. Okay, stop. So it's very caveman-like. It's very low. So like if I wanted something higher, it would look like this. And this goes an octave up. So this will sound maybe just a little bit tenser, perhaps sweeter. So what does it sound like, Rob? Okay, so that's that. All right, so it's still an A. It's just a little higher A, so it has a different character to it. So instead, I don't really want this sound of fingers. So instead, I want it to be played with a pick, with a plectrum. So I write with pick. And so, Rob, what does it sound like, please? It's a different kind of sound, so it's all kind of very, very little kind of staticky. So, uh, put up the next thing, please. So, like, I want this to be all downstroke. So, what? There's a way that you can actually play the bass up and down with, with, with alternate picking. This is alternate picking here. Down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. It's a certain kind of sound, but instead, I want all downstrokes, which sounds like this. A little more incessant, right? So. Uh, that's another opportunity. So that now the next thing here is accent. So if you see those little things that look like greater than signs, it happens on the first note and the fourth note. So that means that those are the notes that need to pop out a little bit more. So what does this sound like, Rob? So you hear... And so Rob inferred that just by looking at the music. So I had to know ahead of time that just by drawing that there, he's going to know that that's what I mean. So that's that. So one more layer of color. So put one more thing up here. So see that where it says PM down there? That means palm mute, which if you play guitar, that's a technique where you take the palm of your hand and you deaden the strings while you play and that dampens the sound and it sounds like this. Totally different sound, right? All right, and then one more color to add here. That little P, that means piano, play soft. So do this quietly. So all these different little colors and different little codes and cues that you throw to the musician so that you know what it is that you're looking, so that you started with what could have been a very caveman-like sound, which was this, and like throw all that away and then go back to this, which on the page, which is this. So that's all the little detail work that involves orchestration. So I thought I'd show you guys a little bit of the process that way. Thank you, Rob. Thank Woo. you, Mr. Jost. You're the best. And when you and, and Lynn you know, were collaborating, is that what you were doing with Lynn also? Uh, it, it, a little bit of everything. Um, you were telling him where to stroke? <laughs> where the stroke was. Um, with... <laughs> It depends. Uh, uh, with Lynn, case in point, Lynn, uh, when he's writing, will usually either write something out, uh, uh, lyrics, and then put chord symbols above them. That was a lot of In the Heights was done that way. When we did Hamilton, a lot of that was done on computer. So Lynn would record onto the computer, come up with demos, program drum beats, find cool sounds, and then it would be my job to get that all written down, whether it was through me, whether it was getting some other people to put stuff on the page and start to notate. And then from there, I would basically zhuzh. I would basically decide, yeah. okay, maybe we could have the music stop here so that we can highlight this lyric there. And maybe like the ending could like slow down a little bit. Maybe like we could wind the ending up a little bit so that it feels a little bit more satisfying when it ends. Uh, maybe we can take this phrase and move it over there. So it's a little bit kind of like arranging in a way. And that li literally the word arranging, moving stuff around and deciding where stuff goes. And then the real detailed work when it came time to orchestrate 
as I said, the, the macro to the micro, orchestrating became like in the case of Hamilton, deciding, okay, we're going to have four strings and these are, it's going to be two violins and a viola and a cello and there's going to be only one guitar, not two, uh, because I don't think this show needs two guitars and I don't think this show needs an oboe, I don't think it needs a French horn, I'm just going to decide what those instruments are and then actually getting down to the detailed work and deciding, okay, when it comes time, this is the pattern that the drummer will play, this is when the strings will enter, deciding when to use them because you don't want to use all the musicians all the time. You need to decide when they appear so that it actually means something. And then do all that detailed work, deciding, are they making a chord? Are they playing by themselves? And what is the articulation of it? Is it a long phrase? Is it accented? Is it quiet? Is it played with a certain part of the bow? I don't actually have to learn all this, do I? You do not have to learn all that. Okay, absolutely okay. not. So it, that's kind of what it is that I did. That, that's my job in a nutshell. Um, now that you all are uber famous, I would say super famous, um, I imagine that for Lynn, it's really lovely to have you and Tommy Kale and, you know, an inner circle to lean on because you guys didn't become hey, famous right away. That's old school. That was at the O'Neill. That was uh, 2005. You're in Tommy Kale's um, Jufros are like gorgeous. <laughs> what do you use? Uh, at that time, no joke, Tommy Kale was using shaving cream in his hair. That was a yes. trick that he had gotten. I never got on board with that concept, but he was rocking the shaving cream for a while, let me tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> So good to know. That's not argon oil. Um, in, in all seriousness, who do you lean on now that, you know, you're going to meet a lot of people who want things from you and or you may not know and may assume that they want something. Who do you lean on to sort of give you the advice and be your inner circle? I know that you're part of Lynn's inner circle. Sure. You, you know, I, uh, I feel very fortunate to have a, an amazing support system. I've got my wife who's an amazing support system who's, who's back in there tonight. somewhere. Hi, Liana. Hey, babe. Um, and uh, Tommy is always an amazing ear. Like, he is the person that you can call when there's something that you've got to unload or talk about or, or work through. He, he just needs to listen and not offer anything. He could just be that ear. But uh, he's listen, like, Alex, the reality is... That's <laughs> <laughs> very Tommy. That's <laughs> a very Tommy way of saying it. Exactly right. He knows. Tommy also directs Freestyle Love Supreme, which um, yes. a lot of these guys are exactly members right. of. And I, I did want to ask, like, who decided... So the White House is where you did your, your very first Hamilton. I know it was just supposed hey. to be part of a mixtape, but, like... Yes. I, that was the only photo I could get of the two of you guys That's together. That's fine. Um, <laughs> from that the previous documentary. The Dude, I had this permanent crazy grin the entire <laughs> performance. I could not get rid of it. It's the weirdest thing. We're, like... We were just so nervous. Like, when you watch the YouTube video, we're, like, so hype, and we're, like, vibrating, because we're just so, like... It was the first, first time you're performing for President Obama, Absolutely. right? Or any president. Absolutely. In the White House. It was just crazy. So, like, I remember when Lynn introduced me. It's like, on the piano, Alex Lockamore. And you see me on the video, and I've just got this weird-ass grin where I'm just, where I'm just like... <laughs> and I'm, in my mind, I'm like, why am I smiling so hard? I'm like, I don't know. Why am I nodding? I don't know. I just, I can't stop this. And, like, the entire... Film, you just see me just like, I don't think I blinked once for the entire three minutes. I, I can't believe you chose the White House for your dress rehearsal, basically. <laughs> uh, Lynn's got the, he's got some cojones, that's for sure. I, I did want to ask, uh, honestly, because you're hearing impaired, like, how, how do you adjust for that? And, and uh, you were so kind and shared some slides. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, people often ask me, okay, so what is your hearing really like? What, what, what is the impairment? It's very hard to describe. Um, so I actually uh, gave Kate a couple of examples. So this is an average hearing chart. If you look on the left, that's a measurement in decibels. So if you see, like, it's negative 10 and then zero and then if you go across to the left to right, these are hertz. These are like low sounds to high sounds. So 
On the left is the lowest sound, on the right is the highest. So uh, red, I think, is the right ear. Blue is the, the left ear. So if you look, an average hearing chart just kind of lives up there around, you know, around the zero range. So that's average hearing. And this is my hearing. So you see already I start at a deficit. And then as you start to get to the higher pitches, it goes, <laughs> meaning the higher pitches is what I have trouble hearing. You can't be around my mom or me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not to say that I can't hear it, but it's the higher, it's, it's the higher stuff that I lose, like uh, consonants, yeah. high-pitched things, like dog whistle tones. Uh, a really funny story is uh, uh, triangles, for example, are very high-pitched instruments. And I remember we were mixing in, uh, the record for In the Heights, and uh, we were in the studio, and I wanted to hear a particular triangle passage. And I'm like, uh, t- to the mixer, I'm like, can we turn up the triangle? And I'm like, I don't hear it. Can, can you turn up the triangle? And like, guys, I'm sorry. Just turn up the triangle. And then everyone turns back in the, in the room. They look at me like, Alex, if you turn up the triangle anymore, I would be a freaking triangle concerto. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and it was, I, my ears were just not picking up the change in the volume. And whatever it was that it lived in, like I either couldn't hear it or just couldn't pick it up. So now there's certain things and certain frequencies that just kind of leave to the pros. And I kind of like let people tell me whether or not that's living in a good place. So I definitely have people that I lean on for that kind of stuff, which is helpful. And you've also made this huge switch that, you know, to Hamilton is now this huge franchise. And so you're supervising all of these productions all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about going from being in the pit of the orchestra as an arranger and musical director? There you are as a very young. That's me, uh, uh, the pit of the Lion King. That was my first Broadway gig. Yeah, that was me subbing on Key One. That was a picture I wanted to send home to mom to let her know what I was doing. Back when you didn't email photographs. <laughs> and is this pre-Sesame Street? Pre-you working at Sesame Street? Or? Oh, yeah. No, this is 1998. I'm going to say I'm 23 in that picture. Wow. Yeah, but, I had just moved to New York. So no one, so that people don't feel too bad, um, you did get rejected at one point <laughs> in, yes. in, in college. Yeah. You applied for a class. Yep, exactly. Uh, there was a class that I wanted to take that was called line writing. That was about uh, jazz it was a very, very advanced class taught by like the super guru of Berkeley College of Music. And it was going to be his last year teaching it, his last semester. So I remember writing a chart like really, oh, I can't wait to get into that class because things had been going well for me at Berkeley at school. And then I did not get in. I was like, holy crap. And I remember that just made me like realize, okay, A, I need to work hard at this jazz thing if that's really what I want to do, which made me learn that the jazz thing is not what I really wanted to do. And it also just kind of just let me know that, okay, like it's, it, it, it definitely instilled a drive in me, which also let me know like, hey, it's, uh, you have to really go for what you want and not everything you want is going to be readily available just because you want it. And I, the question I was going to ask, though, you're, you're managing all of these productions of Hamilton and managing all these different musicians and all the different company tours while you're also starting to, um, you've already started, composing for film. Were you, were, are you not making enough from Hamilton? Is that why you're doing film? Uh, it, it just happened. The four of us that created the show, um, myself, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tom Michaela, director, Annie Blanca-Buehler, our choreographer. The four of us take a great amount of pride in what it is that we, you know, created with everyone around us. And I hesitate to say that we created it because it was not just us. It was everybody. It was Lynn, and then it became us, and then it became this big family that is now continuing to grow. And uh, because of our uh, pride in the work that we've done and because our immense love for Lynn, for the show, for what it is that we do. It's just important for us to have our, our hands in, in, in uh, how it grows. So um, I just feel lucky that we have other opportunities to present the show to other people. So now you don't have to just come to New York to see Hamilton. You can be in Las Vegas and it'll come to you. As you know? long as you have $1,000, you're fine. <laughs> no, no not, matter not where not you true, are. Not true. You, you just have to get in early. You, okay. you can, yeah. 
So show up at 5 a.m. and you will be able to get in. <laughs> I, I know you said how much you love performing at the beginning of our interview. And you, you don't typically get a chance to, to do so. No. And I saw on, on the Twitters and Instagram that you had met one of your idols, Billy yes. Joel. Yes. So hey, I, yeah. Give it up for Billy Joel, y'all. That was amazing. That was a dream come true. So I was wondering if you would treat us um, <laughs> to a, a little tribute song just for fun. I will. You got yeah. it. You guys, let's Pardon. give Alex a, a warm, warm round of applause as we get started. All right, so uh, Katie was very kind, and she said, okay, I want you to do something fun in your interview. What, what's something that you might not normally do? I'm like, and I think that was about to happen. I was about to go to the concert, and I was trying to find out, think to myself, what could I do? I'm like, well, I could sing a Billy Joel song. That just seems so crazy to me because I'm not a singer, <laughs> and I don't pretend to be one, and I have mad respect for those who do it. But I will say that, like, growing up, I wanted to be Billy Joel, and, like, People would request for me to play Billy Joel songs all the time, so I figured this would be a good opportunity to just end my career in front of everybody. So, I will be joined by Shockwave and Rob. I believe I've passed the age. Hi again, it's your host, Katie Lazarus, and Employee of the Month, as you know, has partnered with Slate, and unfortunately, we cannot share these live recordings of guests on my show doing their thing, which means you have to come to the live shows. But in this instance, you can actually hear Alex Lackamore on the Employee of the Month show's YouTube page. We have a video of it. Go to it. Enjoy it. Billy Joel, I think he will enjoy it too, and I hope you will as well. Come on, Alex Lackamore, ladies and gentlemen. You guys, I want to give Alex a couple gifts because I'm so thankful to him for, for coming. Um, Thank you for having me. This is so that you continue to have a fertile career. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank Russ and Daughters, um, who have generously sponsored us over the years, and there's Bobka in here from My People to Yours. You can, you can oh, grab it out. Also, a Parks Club co-op bag because nothing is more <laughs> chic. Um, I also got you this wonderful, beautiful hat from E for Effort. And it is the world turned upside down. Oh, I love it. That's wonderful. Thank and I you. know that you're going to um, the you. march on March 24th, and you can yes. wear, wear that hat if you want. Um, some great things Thank from you. Factory you. for your computer, because I want you to never stop writing. You said you don't use a notebook, oh, so put this. that this in a computer. Great. Because you, you collaborate a lot, I got you this book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. I don't know if anyone's read him, but I just I loved learning about their collaboration, and I thought this book is fantastic. Wonderful. If you don't read, then it'll be a great doorstopper. <laughs> Thank um, you. And Rob suggested that you were too nice and generous to the people who um, work for you. So here are some Shakespeare insult generators um, <laughs> if you need, need help criticizing people or you can <laughs> Thanks, just uh, you know, <laughs> use it for, for Trump. And then um, I'd like to give some things from previous guests. So Jay Period, who did the mixtape yes. um, for Hamilton, I oh, wanted to share oh, a demo so of his much. work with you as well. I also wanted to show you what Ella made. Um, she made this beautiful illustration oh, wow. of you. Oh, thank you, Ella. As well. Super cool. Thank you. And I just want to give you one more round of applause and just thank you for doing all of the beautiful, beautiful work you do. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you, for having Alex. me. Thanks, everybody. I am so thrilled to take a small break from our interviewing to welcome some incredibly talented women who have been instrumental, pun intended, as part of the Women's March. 
including helping set up and run the Women's March and also fill it with so much inspiration, which has been a tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years of reminding us why we get up when we least want to and speak out. And so without further ado, I would love to welcome the Resistance Revival Chorus. Hallelujah. 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 
Thank you. We are the Resistance Revival Chorus. And our mission is to uplift and celebrate the idea that joy is an act of resistance. And also to revive protest music from the past and to bring new protest music to these times. Thank you so much. It was so delightful speaking with Alex that we did some follow-up questions. I called him from Slate Studio in Brooklyn. He was off managing yet another production of Hamilton. So, Alex, I was referring to you as a musical maestro because you had so many (laughs) job titles that I didn't know what to call you. What do you call yourself? (laughs) You know, it depends what what I'm doing on that particular job. Like, I remember when I would uh, meet people uh, at Hamilton, like if they came to see the show, I would say, oh, hi, I'm Alex. I'm the music director and orchestrator of the show. Because those are the things that I felt like most proud of and the things I felt like kind of uh, um, really kind of captured what it is that I did on the show. But, you know, on other shows, I don't actually music direct. Like I've, I've done shows where I'm just like a, uh, uh, like I was just a producer on the Greatest Showman soundtrack, for example. Or I was just the dance arranger on Annie, which I did a few years ago. So it depends what it is that I'm doing and what, what I'm asked to do. But for shows where I do wear all the hats, as it were, like, you know, for Hamilton, I, I did the music direction, I conducted, I played piano, I arranged, I orchestrated. It was a lot to talk about. And for me, just saying the music director didn't feel like it, it, it mentions the, the, the writing aspect of what it is that I did on the show in terms of the arrangements and the orchestrations. So that, that, it all depends on what it is that I'm talking about. You started out, I believe, as a jazz musician, as a piano man? As a piano man, uh, not jazz per se. I, I started playing the classical standards. I mean, you know, I'm just, I was playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star very early, but jazz didn't start for me until I was in high school. That's where I started to get actual formal training, and then I continued to study it in college. And at one point, I thought I was going to be a jazz musician, and I just thought that's what I would be able to get paid to do. That's what I thought I uh, I would find my my niche in. But then I learned that I was not a very good jazz pianist. <laughs> How did you learn <laughs> that? Who were, you know, I learned that uh, it partially on the thing that I talked about, where there was a class that I didn't get into, and I realized, oh wow, maybe I'm not as good at jazz as I thought. And also I started to listen to my colleagues, my people around me and how good they were at playing certain styles and how not good I was. And also I, I just kind of like realized how much I didn't love, 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 love jazz to the point that I think one needs to love, love, love the genre to really become a musician in the field. And one thing I would always say to people is that even when I was at Berkeley, yes, I was buying the jazz records and yes, I was listening to, you know, the Bill Evans and, and, uh, and you know, the, the jazz guitar records, West Montgomery this and the Miles Davis that. But given a choice, if someone were to ask me, hey, do you want to put on a Miles record or do you want to listen to Led Zeppelin? I was probably going to listen to Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to preface so- our listeners, that you went from Berkeley College of Music straight to Broadway, straight to The Lion King, right? I, I hung out in Boston for about a couple of years, and I did a couple of uh, theater gigs there. I also did about two years playing on a boat, a cruise ship called the Spirit of Boston. Uh, at Spirit Cruises, they have like a chain. I don't know if they're still around, actually. But my job was playing on the band, on the ship. It was day cruises. It was only three-hour cruises that would leave Boston Harbor. And it started by playing cocktail music. So you played standards, like Someday My Prince Will Come and, and, uh, and Miles Davis Solar. And then uh, you'd have to play like the easy listening stuff, like 
the Eagles and I would sing Billy Joel just the way you are and, and that kind of stuff. And then as the night progressed, you would do like the harder stuff, like Disco Inferno and like <laughs> what I like about you. And then I would like my big song was Better Man by Pearl Jam because that was really big at the time. <laughs> Everybody would flip when I do that. It was, it, was, it was fun. So, yes, I did that in Boston for a little while, kind of paying my dues that way. And then I moved to New York and did the Broadway thing in 1998. I don't know if people know, but like in comedy and musical theater, you know, doing cruises is for better and for worse, a staple of making money, sure. even after you've made it sometimes. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, I playing on a cruise for me, the, the regularity of it, the, uh, the, the practice of it, the performance aspect of it, like also knowing how to read a crowd. Like I would watch as our band leader could tell, OK, this is not a good time to play uh, Whoop, There It Is. You know, we have to like work up to that. <laughs> so uh, it was just knowing that he was able to kind of call out songs on the fly based on how the crowd was responding. I thought that was a really, very smart thing. And, and uh, not only that, but the business aspect, the way he ran the department, the way he ran the band, the way he was the band leader. Like, it, I really like uh, learned a lot from doing that cruise thing. That's a perfect segue because one of your musicians spoke off the record, on the record, uh, Robbie Jost, who is part of Dear yes. Evan Hansen and thankfully flayed hooky for the evening t- um, yeah. for us to do our interview. I, he, I love Rob. And he's so grateful to you for his his job. But he also pointed out, he said that you have an uncanny ability when lowering your head. And I wanted you to try to explain to me what he meant, that um, <laughs> when you're directing the band, they watch your head and you always hit hit it at the same height. Can you explain what that means? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm guessing he's talking about conducting. Uh, when you're conducting from a piano, if you're using both your hands to play the keys, you can't always lift your hands to show the musicians what it is that you, uh, where you want them to be. So a lot of people, when they're conducting from a piano, they have to nod their head in time to show where the beat is. And some people actually kind of use their nose as like the point of focus. <laughs> some people just kind of bob their head. So I guess maybe what Rob is talking about is, is maybe I'm consistent in, in how I yes. nod my head and, and let someone know what it is to look for. You know, being a band leader, there's a lot of telegraphing that needs to happen. There's a lot of, uh, you have to say, here, come this way. This is where I need to be. And there, there's many ways to do that. And I use my whole body when I do that. I, I try to embody the music. I try to make not just my hands sound like what it is that I want to do, but make them look what, like what it is that I want them to do. And I try to do the same with my head and my, my body and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm guessing Robbie was uh, talking about that aspect of it. But yes. I, I know what he means. And and, uh, and thank you, Rob. You have these ringlets. Like, do you have to keep your hair at the exact same length so that when you <laughs> nod your head, like, do you get haircuts yeah, yeah, regularly I, I to a, keep it a, consistent? It's in my writer. I have to, uh, no, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> The other question I wanted to ask you is, you know, Hamilton takes off, it becomes this huge brand, but it is also essentially now a, a franchise where you have all these productions all over the world. And I wanted to ask about going from perhaps supervising in some to some extent as a band leader, as a musical director, as an arranger, but to managing these large productions all over. Can you talk a little bit about that switch for you? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, a, a couple of things. I, uh, for me, when I was conducting, absolutely, there would be times when you couldn't remember a Thursday show from a Saturday afternoon show. They were kind of blurred together. And those times, I would try to just remember, okay, there's someone in the audience who has not seen the show before. There's someone who's having their first exposure to the show, and you want to make it worth their while. They're paying a lot of money to see a Broadway show. There's a lot of hype around it, and you want to deliver 
Um, so I would always try to remember that there was someone who is experiencing us and I want to give them everything that, that we have and, and remember that that person's life can be changed by seeing the show, much like Lin-Manuel's life was changed when he saw her rent for the first time. You know, not uh, everybody is built for the, the life of repetition. You know, there's certain people who love the life of that um, consistency where you walk into the theater at such a time and you punch a clock and you do the show and you go home. And there's people who go years doing that and they're totally cool with it. You know, there's people who I think are still in the cast of Phantom of the Opera who've been there for like, you know, 30 years or what have you, or people at Wicked who've been there for 10 years plus, and they're totally fine with that. I know me personally, I, I enjoy more the creative process. I enjoy the change. I enjoy the movement. So I, I know for me, when I did In the Heights, I only played that show probably a year and a half on Broadway. Same thing with Hamilton before I, I moved on and, and did other things and moved to a different position. So that's kind of where I think my limit is in terms of the repetition. So by and large, what's happening with Hamilton now is that we are remounting the show as it currently exists. And that's not to say that there isn't room for creativity. Uh, I think the creativity now comes in, for example, when you get a new burr and it's time to get to the room where it happens. And the ad-libs that Leslie Adams Jr. sang at the end of the song were organic and tailor-made to how his voice sounds and the kinds of jazz riffs that he likes to do. And I find that every time you get a new burr, there's an opportunity to change the way, of this, the, the way the song ends based on what that burr's high notes are and where they sound best and what their proclivities are about like, how jazzy do they want their turns to be. Are, are they not a riffer? And therefore, do we need to find a way to make them sound like they are comfortable and that they're still being expressive at the end of the song? So those kinds of moments are great because then it's like, oh, this is a, a way to end the song that's particular to the Philip tour. That's not the same as the Angelica tour, and it's not the same as it is in London. So I, I enjoy where those kinds of things can shift a little bit. And also new actors will have different interpretations of, of the way they want the, the journey of the, the, the roles that they're playing. So there's times for things to stretch a little bit, and I do enjoy that aspect of it. But by and large, it is definitely more managerial. It's answering emails, it's flying out to cities to check in, to see how people are doing, to make sure that the, that the show is still within the realm of what it is that we set when we last left them. So it's uh, it also be communicating with the music directors and being making sure that things are happening, that things are going smoothly on the music teams on what is now five different companies of the show around the world. And now that you're doing film, you know, both animated films and live action, are you like the new kid on the block now that you're in that industry or are you treated as you should be like royalty? Oh man, I, I, I'm definitely royalty. like finding my way around. I, I'm uh, yeah, new kid on the block is, I, I don't even feel like I'm on the block yet. I feel like I'm, I'm in the car on the way to where the block <laughs> might be. That sounds like LA. So I, Wait, I, that sounds like you're in the thick of it. <laughs> it's a lot of driving. Yes. I'm not in the carpool lane. Uh, I, I definitely feel like um, I, I'm still, learning a lot about it and I feel very lucky that I know some people who are in the scene who I can talk to and get advice from so I'm very much still observing I'm very much getting my hand held which is totally fine with me and I, I want to explore what this world is and, and, and how I can fit into it so I, I feel lucky that I know people who are in that world who like I, I can get tips from. And my last question how much leverage do you have in terms of ticket prices for Hamilton? <laughs> uh, that's not really my, my field. Uh, why do you ask? Just curious. Just wanted to see it. <laughs> you, you know people, Katie. You're good. I, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you five numbers of people that. Uh, I'm kidding. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Alex Lacamoire, I just want to tell you uh, what a generous person you are and and how delightful it has been to actually really get a glimpse into your world. And I know that for most of us, we will never have your your true gifts, but you really are mm. a remarkably gifted musician. And I just wanted to thank you for sharing your gift with the world. You're so sweet, Katie. Thank you. I, I'm, I love what it is that I do. And I feel like music is what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. There's been no other option for me. And music is my solace and, and it's saved me a, a lot. So I'm, I'm thankful that I, I get to do this as a career. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. And, and just know that if the Tonys and Grammys and Oscar nomination didn't help, I think the Employee of the Month Award is what's going to put you on the map. <laughs> I'm going to list that first in, in my bio. And I want to thank everyone for coming out and want to hear what Andrew learned from this show as we bring out um, our guests who deserve their awards, as do you for, for staying over. Thank you all for staying late. Okay, give it up for Katie. Give it up for the guests tonight, y'all. But now, we're wanting to show y'all everybody back up. It's time for the Employee of the Month. Rip, wrap up. They'll come out and then they'll hold their plaques up. It's time for the first guest. Rip, rip, wrap up. Because number one truly knows the score. Arranger, orchestrator, Alex Lackamore. Yeah, he's bringing it out. Oh my goodness, Evan Hansen, Hamilton, and no doubt. Uh, smiling so hard. You're not an angry young man. Better than Billy Joel, a good goddamn. Winning those sports and recitals since age four. You're gonna need a new house if you win more. We love when you played. We love when you spoke. We love when you told Lin-Manuel just had a stroke. So please, Alex, just hold that plaque up. Now, guess number two's rip the rip wrap up. Finally, the heroes singing and fighting for us. A melodic and honest resistance revival chorus. In these trying times, you know we need them. So we can get woke. So stay your freedom. There's a million of you. We need a million more. We'll see you at the march on March 24. So everybody hold those invincible plaques up. Give it up for the employee of the month. Wrap up now. We'll drink the drinks and spark the blood to give it up for the employees of the month. We're glad to have you. Yes, sir, you're with us. And also give it up for Katie Lazarus. tuning in to Employee of the Month. I want to thank the Resistance Revival Chorus, Alex Lacamoire, the Gramercy Theater, where we recorded this episode live, and my exceptional audio team, Jessamine Molly, Daniel Schrader, and Jason Miller. 
Our sponsors, I want to give a big thanks to Russ and Daughters, FCTRY, and E for Effort. And if you'd like to sponsor or attend a live show or find out more, go to Slate's Podcasts or Employee of the Month Show. Or you can follow me at Katie underscore Lazarus on Instagram or on Twitter. It won't feel awkward. It won't feel like you're shocking me at all. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate us on iTunes. And if you want to catch videos from the live taping of the Resistance Revival Chorus or Alex Lacamoire, amongst others, go to Employee of the Month Show's YouTube page. You can also catch our back catalog of interviews, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I mentioned in this particular one. It's an absolute worthwhile listen because it is about what it was like before he became an international celebrity. And last but not least, I want to especially thank my band, led by my intern, Chris Shockwave Sullivan, interns, intern, MC Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, as well as Camille Harris, Smuta, and Robbie Jost, who took a night off from the musical Dear Evan Hansen to join us. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. Talk to you soon. To sing along and clap your hands and get up out of your seat and fill this room with joy because joy is an act of resistance. So if you know the words, please get on up and sing with us. And don't let.